Good afternoon. Oh, there we go. Now we're on. Good afternoon. Welcome here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is John, and I have the great privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at Reality, so welcome to you. Um, we are going to read our passage that we're, uh, the teaching is based on, so I invite you to join, me, uh, join with me and stand, if you can, as we read this passage together from Matthew 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her father Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting, or her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, this passage is the passage we're focusing on for our Advent series, which is last week, this week, and then next week. And uh, last week, we started by looking at this really strange idea and concept here that God supernaturally impregnated this woman named Mary. It's called the Immaculate Conception. And I ended last week's sermon by saying the way that that might apply to us today is to think to ourselves that God actually wants to do the same thing in our lives, that God wants to make a baby with each one of us. And on one hand, that that should mean, help us to think that we, we won't give up on ourselves. We shouldn't give up on ourselves. We shouldn't give up on ourselves or humanity because there's always hope. The story is that God is always recreating and he wants to recreate. He wants to make a baby in your life. But also because he's making a baby, the way that babies grow is very, very slowly. And so we also shouldn't give up on God and his work in our world and his work in our lives because often the way that he does it is just very slowly bearing fruit over our lives. So God wants to make a baby with you. That's the message of Christmas. I, I know you, you all knew that, right? But so don't give up on yourselves. Don't give up on the world because there's always hope in Jesus. And on the other hand, don't give up on God because sometimes his work is just the slow work of growing a new human. Today we're going to focus on the person of Joseph in this story. And uh, if you read through, there's in Luke and Matthew are really the two uh, gospels that have stories of this part of the kind of the, um, uh, the Christmas narrative. And in Luke, it focuses more on uh, Mary's perspective. So you can go and look at that. And I preached through that a couple of years ago if you want to go look in the archives and listen to those sermons, which no one will do. Um, but here, this focuses, Matthew focuses much more on Luke's, or sorry, on Joseph's story. So that's what we're going to do today. And in verse 19, there's a very important word that we need to key in on if we want to understand this story. It's important to this narrative. It's very important to the gospel of Matthew. And it's also important in the entire Bible. And in verse 19, it calls Joseph a righteous man, a righteous man. Now, that's the question. What does this word righteous mean? So there's a theological definition for that. Um, and it's not so much the abstract idea of being right, but actually having right standing or consequent right behavior within a community. So there's two ways that righteousness was given out or a person would be called righteous at the time of Matthew's writing. And the first would be in the court. 
So in a legal standing. So a righteous person is someone who's acted in line with the laws of God and the laws of Israel. If you act in that way, if you behave correctly according to the law, then you would be a righteous person. So if you think about uh, two people at that time, they didn't have lawyers. So I was going to say thank goodness, but there are some lawyers here. Um, but they, had, they would have people, they would come towards the, um, they would come to the elders and the elders would adjudicate between them if they had some sort of legal dispute between the two of them. And the person who was acting in line with the law would be considered righteous. That person would be righteous. And the other person who wasn't acting righteously would be given some sort of a way for them to come back into right standing with not only that other person, but with community. And that's the basis for our law system as well as law in the Bible. So that's one way people would be considered righteous is through legal means. The second way is through the covenant. Now, we talked about this uh, several months ago, and there's a really great Bible project video on YouTube uh, that talks about covenants. But the idea of covenants is basically this, that God wants to work through humans. The way that he's designed the world is that he longs to actually par partner with us together in order to make this place, uh, the world, a place of shalom, a place where he can come and dwell. And so he continually reaches his hand out, if you want to picture that. God is continually reaching his hand out to us and saying, I want to partner with you. And he does that in various ways through the Bible. He partners, he chooses this group of people called Israel, and he says, I want to partner with you. I'm holding my hand out to you. And they make agreements about how they'll partner together. Um, and so when we say people keep the covenant, when a God keeps his end of the covenant, or when people keep their end of the covenant, they are faithful to the covenant, or they would be considered righteous. And so in, in, to call somebody, that's the second meaning of righteous. They are covenant faithful. So to call someone righteous in the first century Jewish context was a huge compliment. And the word that they would say is a sadiq. Someone is a sadiq, which is the way of saying uh, righteous in the Hebrew. And so this is the world that we're entering into. When they call uh, Joseph a righteous man, that's what they have in mind, that he's faithful to the law, he's faithful to covenant. But Matthew is actually doing something quite subversive in this passage and in his whole gospel. Because he's not actually defining what righteousness means. He's actually giving us a case study. He's giving us a person. He's putting a person forward and saying, this is a righteous man. And so we're supposed to look at what does it mean to be righteous through the lens of Joseph and through him in the story. Because Joseph will actually do some very unrighteous things in the, in the definitions that he would have had in his time. So to better understand this story, we need to uh, give ourselves some context to what's actually going on here. There, uh, Joseph and Mary are in a very, very small town, in a town called, anyone know? Nazareth. Well done. Just testing your Bible trivia ahead of all the Christmas parties that you're going to go to. Okay, Nazareth. And the word technically means the stick town. That's like the, the name of it, which is very heartwarming for me because I'm from a really small town and we used to say I'm from, we're from the sticks. So Jesus also came from the sticks. He, I'm in good company. And the town that I grew up in is called Laclavish. It's in northern Alberta, really small town, 2,300 people. Um, but Jesus' uh, stick town is much smaller than that. There's like 400 people in this tiny little town. And if you grew up in a small town, then you'll also know that in a small town, everybody's up to each other's business. You always know. So even in a town I grew up with, just over 2,000 people, everybody knows what's going on. So one of the things that uh, Lac Labiche is infamous for is it was, has been the teen pregnancy capital of Canada for a long time. Many years. And so one of the things that would get discussed in our town is who's pregnant with whose kid. This would be just like common conversation in my high school. 
And you just get to know this is like what everybody's talking about. A lot of you could say gossip, but this is small town life if any of you had not had the privilege in growing up small town. There's lots of great things, but there's also everybody's up to each other's business. So that's where they're growing up is in this tiny little town. And, the, and it says in the, in the narrative that they're engaged to each other. Now, to be engaged in this society had two steps. The first step is the exchange consent with each other. So the two families agree that these two people are going to get marri married to each other. And in that culture, that constitutes legal marriage. Even though we would call it they're just engaged, in that culture they're legally, marriage, or legally married, which is why it says, if, I don't know if you noticed in the story, that Joseph wants to, in, to divorce Mary even though they're actually just engaged. So it's different than our culture. And so there would be a, a consent to be married, which is like the engagement period, and then there'd be one year, usually where the groom has to now go get enough money to pay the price for the bride. Excuse me for the bride. And then after that year, after he paid the bride, uh, the bride price, then that's when they would kind of have the marriage and they would be married and they would start their married life together. And in this context, marriage uh, was like one of the, high, the most important steps of your life. Not only getting married, but having kids and especially having boys. This is like the most important thing that you could do. So on a personal level, we've got to think Joseph is a Sadiq. He's a righteous guy. He's got one of the highest standings. People are like, he's a really, really good guy. And on the other hand, on the more communal family level, things are trending in the right direction for him. He's about to get married and hopefully he'll be able to have some kids and hopefully some boys. So that's the story of Joseph's life at this moment. He's entering into the climax moment of his life, the most exciting part of his life for both of them probably. And then into this story, Mary comes to him and she says, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Now, what would, what would be your response? How would you feel if you were in Joseph's shoes? I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to just try to enter into his world and think about how would you feel if you were in his shoes? All right, any... Any thoughts? What would some emotions, what might some emotions be? How you would feel? Betrayed. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was reading um, uh, this old church father, John Christosinum is his name, and uh, as one, you know, does on a Wednesday. And um, he was uh, just a couple hundred years after uh, Jesus was born, actually, he's writing. And one of the interesting things he wrote that I would have never thought about about what you're saying, Dan, is he says, Joseph must have felt, he calls it the most poisonous and tyrannical passion of jealousy. And I never really thought about that because I never really put myself in his shoes. I'd be like probably pretty jealous if that, I, I never, if, if my fiance did that, if that was her, um, what she said to me, yeah. Other, other emotions that might arise. Confusion, yeah, sure. I mean, some of us can, can attest to that. When your story arc of your life is all headed in one direction, and then all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt. Massive amounts of confusion. The two that I came up with, one is uh, anger. And uh, I think that um, this may also be where I grew up and when I grew up. All of my emotions were generally fun funneled towards anger. 
anger or hunger, I think, were probably the two that I was allowed to have openly. But I would feel anger. That was the first thing that came. I'd be like, I'd angry at Mary. And we have to remember in the moment, we don't know anything about what's going on. We have to put ourselves just in his shoes. The other one that is really important for us to understand is the emotion of shame. Um, for, for those of us who come from honor-shame cultures, like Chinese culture, for example, or any traditional cultures, really, you'll understand what honor and shame is. But for those of us who don't, we come from maybe more of an individualistic or a Western background or even a mixed background, um, it can be hard to understand and enter into what they experienced in this culture. So let me read a, a passage for us uh, that might help us to understand a little bit about what an honor-shame society would see here. Shame honor societies assume a strong group orientation. Honor is the person's social worth, one's value in the eyes of the community. So it's not a personal thing, it's a communal thing. Honor is when others think well of you, resulting in harmonious, or harmonious social bonds in the community. Honor comes from relationships. Shame, on the other hand, is a neg negative public rating. The community thinks lowly of you. You're disconnected from the group. For example, one Thai word for shaming means to rip someone's face off so that they appear ugly before others. We might get that idea of ripping someone's face off in anger. I'm angry at you. But the idea of honor and shame culture is that and everyone else will also see this. You'll be shamed in front of everybody else. Honor and shame function like a social credit rating measuring one's reputation. Because honor and shame are inherently relational, such cultures are collectivistic. Members of shame honor cultures are expected to maintain the social status of the group, often at the expense of personal desires. If you are from an honor-shame culture and you're living in Canada, this may be the tug and pull that you feel in your life. Canada says, do what you feel, do what you want, and your family of origin may be saying, I don't care what you want or what you feel. We're going to do what's right for our family. Shame and honor are contagious. What one person does will affect the entire group. And so Joseph, yeah, this is his context. For all the personal emotions that he may be feeling, he also understands this has implications not just for him, it has implications for his family and his whole tribe in this tiny little town. And so the word that's used in this passage is that Joseph is afraid. He's afraid of what will happen. Because this, this doesn't just mean, he's not just personally let down. His whole family will be cast out of the society. So here's the question. This is, this is what's facing Joseph. What would you do in this scenario? Or asked in a different way, what does it mean to be righteous in this story? Well, as a righteous man, for someone who is faithful, remember, to the law and the covenant, Joseph can't just overlook her infidelity, Mary's infidelity. He can't just be like, oh, well, it's not a big deal. Let's not worry about it. Um, Mary has broken the covenant that she has with Joseph. They've made a covenant of marriage together. So Joseph has the, Joseph has the right to enact his part, the curses of the covenant. And he has to, has to act righteously. So within the law, he has two options of how he can deal with Mary. The first is that she could be killed. Now, this sounds very grotesque to us, and I get it, and I'm not advocating that we go back to doing this to people. But at that time, one of the things that could happen is if two people uh, that were, someone cheated on their spouse and got pregnant, they could be killed, both the man and the woman, which was very unique in, in that part of the world at that time. And so she would be, the woman would be brought in front of her father's house and stoned to death under the law. That's one option of what could happen. The second option that could happen is that Joseph could divorce her. 
So he takes her court, he takes her to court, he takes her in front of the elders, which would be happening in a very public setting at the gates of the city. And he says, I am righteous. I want you to judge of what's happened here because I am righteous and she is not. That's his two options. So what would you do based on your social, this social situation and how you feel? Well, I might think something like this. You know, killing this person is a little bit much. So, but I might want a public trial. Because remember, we have a lot of empathy for Mary in the story, but it's because we know the end. We're like, but she's carrying Jesus. Like, come on, just take it easy. We have to, we have to plop ourselves right in the middle of the story. Imagine this is your friend, and they're coming to you, and they say to you, yeah, like, this girl I'm dating, she's, uh, she's, we've never slept together, and she's pregnant. So, like, should I stay with her or not? Most of us are not going to encourage probably that person to stay with them. And they live, again, in this honor and shame culture. Joseph isn't just thinking of himself. He's thinking of his whole extended family. And so he might want to say, look, I want to be, I, I don't want to kill Mary, but I want to be really clear that this is not my response. I'm not responsible for any of this. I need to get this, chase this shame away from me and from my family. And I need to restore the righteousness this right standing to myself and to my family. And actually, that's what the punishment of killing people who committed infidelity was actually all about in that society. In their minds, it was about purging the sin, getting rid of it, and vindicating those people who had been wronged. So, into the setting, what does Joseph do? What does righteousness look like? Verse 19. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce, divorce her secretly. So amidst the hurt and the shame, Joseph doesn't choose what's best for him or what's going to vindicate him. And he doesn't make a situation based or a decision based on his rights. And I want to make a big public spectacle of this. But he actually goes through a path of care and concern. He shows an unbelievable amount of grace and mercy to Mary, even while continuing to be a righteous person. Now, this is not the point of this sermon, but I think there's a quick aside here that I, I did want to make as I was praying through what to say. You know, all of us have things that we care very, very deeply about. Positions that we hold that we feel are righteous, that they are our rights, and that we're in the right. Maybe for some of us, they're theological positions, like what does the word righteousness actually mean? Maybe for some of us, they're political positions, or maybe like Joseph, they're a relational thing. That relationally, I'm in the right and you're in the wrong. And our world right now currently encourages finding the biggest platform that you possibly can and screaming these righteous indignations as loud as you possibly can. I'm right, that person or those people are wrong, therefore we should shame them. And I want us to just take a minute to look at Joseph here. What does it look like to be a righteous person? Does he care about what is right? Absolutely. The point isn't to let go of what's right, but look how he carries it. He doesn't use his righteousness as a bulldozer over other people or to push someone down who's marginalized, but he uses his standing to offer grace and mercy to someone who's hurt him. You know, Mary would have many less rights in the society than Joseph. If he denounces her, he's screwed, but she's even worse. And yet he uses his position to offer her grace and mercy. So to be righteous means not only having right definitions or beliefs or opinions about justice and grace, but to actually be a person who embodies the grace of Jesus. And in that way, Joseph points us ahead to his illegitimate son, 
Jesus in his life, who will answer, also answer this question, what does it mean to be righteous? Because Jesus will fulfill the law. He will fulfill all the covenants, but then in an act of supreme grace and mercy, he'll give his life for those people who hate him. So what does it mean to be righteous? It means to look like Joseph, to offer grace and mercy to people. So imagine that you're Joseph again. You made a righteous but really difficult decision to let go of the story of your life, the story of your family. You've all been trending towards this your whole life. You're going to divorce Mary. You're going to do it quietly. So people are going to be asking you questions for the rest of your life about this woman. But he's probably thinking like, hey, good, let's get this over with. Um, I'm a divorcee now, which maybe is okay in our culture. Definitely not okay in their culture. But he's like, it's okay. I'm going to move on with my life. And I, I still might be able to find someone to marry me and carry on my family line. Verse 20. But after he had considered these things, after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. There's that word. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now again, let's try to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. He, remember, he's a case study of what righteousness looks like, what it means to be you might even say in our, our culture, just like a great and good, upstanding person. And I ask you the question of about your life. What do you do when you hear the call of God? Or maybe better said, what do you hear when you, what do you do when you experience the nudge of the Holy Spirit into something that might be unpractical or unknown or uncomfortable for you? And many of us might say, you know, if an angel spoke to me, it's okay, I would go ahead and do it, even if it was very impractical. But let's, let's remember what I talked about last week, that we live in this imminent frame, as the philosopher Charles Taylor says. We've built this bubble around ourselves that makes it really, really hard for us to experience God's hand reaching in, God's words reaching in to lead and guide us. So we're always explaining the voice of the transcendent away in our culture. So we live in a space where faith and doubt is always going to be a part of experiencing God. I'll give you an example in my own life of how I've experienced this. I think I shared this story once before, but it's probably been a while. So when I was a student at the University of Alberta in my undergrad, um, I took this night class once. And the class ended at something like nine o'clock at night. So if you, we would all sprint out of the class afterwards, you know, fully put on our parkas and all that stuff. It's the middle of winter in Alberta. And you run down to the LRT station, which is like this underground train station at the U of A. And you try to get there because uh, it, there was a train that came and it only came like every 15 or 20 minutes. So sprint down there, the train's already gone. So I'm sitting there, uh, there's just a few people in the LRT station at that time. And I was walking around, I had finished, the class was in Greek mythology, it had nothing to do with God. God was not really on the top of my mind, my mind at that time. But I remember walking in, and the train's gone, I'm like, ah, oh, great, I have like 15, 20 minutes to, to just stand here. And um, at the end of the train platform, there was this girl sitting on these, I still remember, they had these round kind of seats. And I remember seeing her and just, it wasn't an audible voice, but just hearing like a voice in my head saying like, go and talk to her. I want you to go talk to this girl. And I was like, oh, I, is this God? I don't, I, I just don't really know. So I started just pacing back and forth, excuse me, pacing back and forth on this platform. 
walking towards her and be like, God, I don't know if it's you. Maybe you, should, you. maybe you should say it again, maybe a little louder this time. And then I would walk away and I'd build up some courage. And I'd be like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm probably never going to see this person again. What does it matter? This is really weird. This has never happened to me before. I'll just go talk to her. So I'd turn around and I'd walk towards her and then I'd be like, and i just turn back around, walk back the other way. 20 minutes back and forth on this platform. And I'll still rem- I still remember her getting up. I have no clue what this person looked like in my mind anymore. But the train came, she got on the train, I never saw her again in my life. Why didn't I act in that moment? Well, for one, I thought it would be pretty awkward, um, but I'm awkward all the time. So like that, that wasn't really the excuse, although I was like, hi, I'm John, have you heard of our Lord Jesus Christ? I don't really know what to say, and I definitely, there was part of that that was bothering me, but the other piece was just like, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure in my mind, and I, and I wanted to wait until that doubt was gone or until I was more sure to talk to this person. And that's, I think, an example of how we live in our world, that we're frozen out to, to, because of this dome that we've created to understand or to know if God is speaking to us. And the terrible dynamic we find, in, in, like I mentioned last week, is that so many of us are desperate for God to reach into our lives, to speak to us, to minister to us, to encourage us, to call us into something. But our outlook on the world makes it really, really difficult to ever see his hand reaching in. So what do you do when you face doubt and uncertainty in what God might be calling you to? Or as the philosopher Charles Taylor calls it, a cross-pressured reality. He'd say that's our reality. And here's where I love the story of Joseph, is because although he's from a very different time and a very different place with very different cultural assumptions, I think he's going through exactly the same thing. He's in a very big tug and pull. The law of God is telling him to push this woman and her child away. Get her as far away from you as possible. She is unclean. And on the other hand, this angel, the voice of God, is telling him to draw them close. Bring this woman into your life. She's going to be the closest person to you. Call her, take her as your wife, the narrative says, and take him as your son. Name him. Pull him into your family lineage. He's got this push and pull that I know I can relate to. I don't know if you can. So what do we do? What do we do when we're tugged in different directions and we're running these different scenarios through in our minds, whether it's on a train platform or in the middle of the night or however you do it? Again, the question comes up to us, what does it mean to be righteous? That's what Joseph has put forward as. So here's what I think we can learn from this passage That being righteous is learning to say maybe to God. Being righteous is learning how to say maybe to the voice of God in our lives. That's what Joseph says. Even though he can't fully make sense of this in his head, even though it goes against the system that he has for how God works in the world and and what he believes and, and how he lives, even though it's going to cause him tremendous amounts of pain, and we'll get into this uh, next month when we look at this narrative again, he says maybe. Just maybe God is doing something here. And this is the opposite direction of much of evangelical culture, which encourages encourages us to be a certain kind of Christian, where being righteous means to have all of your thoughts and ideas and theologies about who God is locked down. Or being righteous means to close yourself off to a sense of mystery and how God works in the world. But I think Joseph teaches us here to say maybe. And he's far from the only one in the Bible who does so. Let let me just uh, name a few more people 
that in the history of faith that learn to say maybe to God. And this relates to the graphic that we have for our series of all these different people that um, meet up and lead to the person of Jesus. So the first is Noah. Um, if you think of the person of Noah, if you know that story at all, he happens just to, uh, in the book of Genesis. And the story goes that God asks, comes to him and asks him to build a huge, build a boat. Build a boat. It's not raining out at all. If you know the story, he asks him to build it out of gopher barky, I think is how the story goes. And, and it's not raining whatsoever. No one's ever been asked to make a boat before, a massive boat. But here God comes up to, Joseph, or to, to Noah and he says, make a boat. That's how I want you to follow. And Noah has to learn how to say maybe. Like, look, this is nuts. Maybe I just had too much gopher barky and I'm just hearing some weird voices in my head. But instead he says maybe to God. He follows and he makes the boat. N.T. Wright puts it this way. In the present, the attempt to discern the divine intent carries a maybe about it. To believe in providence often means saying perhaps. What he's trying to say here is to believe in the sovereign God of the Bible, we have to be open and willing to follow him into weird places in the present moment. Because, he continues, as often as not, we only see the divine hand in retrospect. We're standing here in this moment right now, learning to say maybe, and we only see, and when you get it farther into the future, God's hand in our life. So maybe back in the past, we can see how God has been at work in our lives, but we're, we're living in the present, in this moment. And I think N.T. writes that learning, it's learning how to say maybe is learning how to say yes to the divine and sovereign God in the moment. So it's a question of timing. When most of us look at Noah or Joseph, we think, of course, you could have trusted God. Why didn't you trust God? The story's all going to work out. But that's just because we know the end of the story. But we're living in the middle of our stories. We're living in this moment right now. And the moment where I believe God wants to speak, actually God wants to enter into our lives. God wants to make a baby with you and with me and with us. And if we want to learn to follow him and let his divine presence enter into our lives, then we have to learn how to say maybe, to have an imagination, because so often we'll only see the divine hand at work in hindsight. And so Noah says, yes, he says maybe to God into this crazy request that we see now as part of the story of God's divine providence in history. But at that moment, he has to learn how to say maybe to God. Abraham is another example, and I hesitated to bring this one up, but maybe it's because I'm reading a bunch of Kierkegaard right now, so it's right on the front of my head. But Abraham has to say maybe to God twice. The first time, an angel visits him and says, you're going to have a kid, and they're both 100 years old, and so they laugh at God. They're like, you're crazy. This is not going to happen, but they have to learn how to say maybe, and then they have a kid, and what happens? God tells him to go take your son up this mountain and sacrifice him. Again, not something I'm encouraging anybody to do uh, today, but he has to once again say maybe to God, to have a sanctified imagination that God will continue on his work in his world, in the world, and give him a, a child, no matter what happens. And then one last example. We're going to spend about three months after, uh, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and every person that we're going to meet in this story has an interaction with Jesus and has to learn how to say maybe. We'll see people who will accept Jesus as king, and we'll see other people who reject him. And the difference between the two groups is not who has the best theology or who knows their Bible the best. In fact, sometimes that's a deterrent to accepting Jesus for who he is. The difference between the two groups of people that meet Jesus and are willing to say he's king is that those who are willing to say, maybe, just maybe, this child that we're meeting in this story 
is God entering the universe. So what does saying maybe look like? I want to give you four, four things that will help us to learn how to say maybe. The first is a relational knowledge of God. This is what it looks like. This is what Joseph has. A relational knowledge of God. Not just a book knowledge, but a relational trust with the God of the universe. And this is true for not only God, but this is how all relational uh, relationships work. Let me give you an example from my own life. So I really love my wife. Um... Uh, but we're very different people. I was like hesitated there. That was probably awkward. We were like, how's the sentence going to end? I really love my wife, but she's not here, and now I need to get some things off my chest. Um, no, but we're really, really different people, which I often say can mean that we're like the best team. If we learn to work together, we can actually see problems and things from different perspectives, and when we don't, we kind of just butt heads. And so we could be the worst team at the same time. And so sometimes my wife, I do this to her too, but I'm just saying it from my perspective. Sometimes my wife will try to explain something to me by giving me reasons for her actions. But I just absolutely can't understand any of her reasons. Because she it's not because she's wrong or she's illogical uh, or she has bad reasons. They just don't make any sense in my They break my brain when I try to understand what she's trying to say. They, they don't work because I don't look at the world the same way that she does. For example, showing up early. My wife loves to show up early. And it's a, basically a moral offense not to show up early for her. And on the other hand, I don't value being on time for anything. Absolutely anything. Um, so I'll probably be late to my own funeral. But my wife really cares a lot about being late. And sometimes she tries to reason with me about why we should be early or very on time. We went to a Christmas party and we were an hour early, um, awkwardly. And so my wife will say things like, look, it shows people that you value them if you're on time. Or it's very polite for people if you're on time. And when we discuss it, when we try to have a conversation about it, I'll have counter reasons. Look, honey, nobody wants me there early, okay? Maybe they want other people there early. Nobody wants me there early. Um, or if people say six, they mean six-ish. Nobody means that you have to be there at five to six. And if we try to have that conversation, it often just turns into an argument. And in the end, the easiest thing for me to say to my wife is, look, I don't need all of the reasons for why you want to show up astronomically early and make me feel awkward. I, I won't understand them or I won't be able to even agree with them. They'll break my mind. But I love you. And so just tell me what it is that you want and I'll try my best to make it happen. And 15 years into our marriage, we have some language that we put to this now, which is to say, it would mean a lot to me if you dot, dot, dot. Or it would show love to me if you dot, dot, dot. Or just not trying to explain anything, or not anything, but these kinds of things where we have personality differences to one another. And I think it's the same thing with God. When we, when we approach him, it's the same thing. He's not going to give us all of his reasons. And sometimes when he does, they're not going to make any sense to us. But do we have a relational knowledge, a relational understanding, where we can say that I know you are working for kingdom good, in the world, and maybe that's what you're calling me into, even though I might not understand why or what or how this is all going to work out. So that's the first piece, is we have to have a relational knowledge, and that's what Joseph has. The second thing is a humility, a humility to say, maybe I don't know everything. My wife will often try to say this to me, maybe you don't know everything, and to which I'll say, but you also don't know everything, and then that's when we, you know, I would make 
It would, it would be loving to me if you just didn't say, you don't know everything back when I say you don't know everything. But this is what but Joseph also has to have, which is a humility. That not only my wife will say this to me, and it's true that I don't know everything, but imagine that, saying that with God. With God, it's so much more important that we learn to say, I don't know everything. I can't understand everything that you're doing in the world at this moment. And there's a huge tension here. Because on one hand, if you remember back to our What is Church series, we are to learn about God. We're to learn who God is. That's the invitation of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a church, is to be a learning community. But on the other hand, as Paul, the Apostle, said, Paul, Apostle Paul says, we'll never know fully. We'll always only know in part. And so we have to live in this humility of how God might be asking in the world and what he might be doing in our midst. So that's number two, a humility. The third is an openness to the current activity of God in the world that we trust that God is at work. And this might be the hardest one for us as people who live in a secular age, as Charles Taylor calls it, with this imminent bubble above us. That it's hard for us to trust that the God of the universe is actually at work today, that his Holy Spirit is actively reaching into our lives, like in the covenants where he's reaching his hand out to you and saying, I want to partner with you. I want to make a baby with you. That might be the hardest thing for you to believe in your world. We have to have an openness. That's what Joseph has, that God is at work in the world. And then finally, an imagination about what God might be doing in the world. Noah says to God, you've never made a big boat before as far as I know. I can't go back and look and be like, oh, there's all these other people who have been asked by God to make a big boat out of gopher bark. Nope, never happened. But he says, but here we go. I have an imagination for what God is doing in the world. Joseph has to say, I've never heard of God impregnating a virgin fiancé before, but here we go. And the people in the Gospel of Matthew will have to say, I've never met the Son of God before, but here we go. Maybe, just maybe, I can have some imagination that he could work in the world. Here's how author Josh McNall says it in his excellent book, Perhaps. Somewhere between dogmatism and doubt, somewhere between certainty and skepticism, reside perhaps maybe you like to be a more dogmatic person or you like to be a person that lives in doubt but God calls us into this open position a not quite settled position of living in faith living as a sadiq here and now it's one of the many things that I find uh, I find this quite interesting because I know in some ways this can sound like heresy but you know one of the things I find very interesting is that many of us are scared to take this position towards God but we all want our non-Christian friends and family to have this position towards God, a position of openness, of saying maybe and perhaps. If you talk to them about Jesus, you want them to be like, look, I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, just like me on the train platform. Look, it's going to sound super weird, but about 2,000 years ago, God impregnated a virgin, and that just kind of changed things for you, Okay. And you want people to have an open mind about this wild and crazy story, but yet we're so cl closed off to having that ourselves. And that can be a good thing. I think there is a, when we commit to following Jesus, there is a narrowing that happens, a closing off, especially to things that are at the core of orthodoxy. So for me, for example, I believe that this baby that Mary has and Joseph names is about to become the Savior and the Lord of the world. And there's a closing off that happens with that for me. But it's not about narrowing down in every single area. 
a buttoning down and closing off mentality that gets us further and further into theological cul-de-sacs and closes us off, most importantly, for this sermon into the working of God in the world. If God wants to make a baby with us, if that's what he's about in this world, then we need to have some imagination and some openness for how this might happen in our time and in our lives and in our church. Let's close by talking about the final step of this passage and what it means to be righteous. Verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a boy, and he named him Jesus. So Joseph doesn't wait for full certainty. He doesn't be like, maybe you can come back again in a week and do the same thing, and then I'll believe. Joseph doesn't just wallow in his doubts, but he walks into what he thinks God is calling him towards. And we see that most clearly by him naming this child Jesus. You know, he could have taken Mary as his wife and then just totally named the child someone else. He could have been like, this is my son, Ronaldo Christ. And we would all have to deal with that. Or if he was a Vancouver parent, he'd be like, this is my son, Douglas Fir Christ. No, Jesus, he fully obeys God, and he walks into what God has called him into. With eyes wide open, he knows this will mean suffering for him. He's in an honor-shame culture. This is going to bring shame to him and his family, that his fiance, who he shouldn't have been sleeping with, now has this kid. That's going to haunt them forever, and we'll talk more about how that's going to hurt their family in a couple months or a couple weeks. He does it with his eyes open, but he also does it with his heart open. He opens his heart back up. Remember, we talked about that, how he must have been hurt by Mary. Now he says, instead of pushing you away, I will bring you close. You are my wife, as it says in this passage, and he names Jesus, his son. You are my son. I'm going to bring you into my family. His eyes are open, his heart is open, and his mind is open. His imagination is open that maybe, just maybe, the God of the universe who wants to act in the world will do something through this child, Jesus, whose name means to save. Yahweh saves. So this is what it means to be righteous according to the Gospel of Matthew, that I don't know everything, but I have enough relational trust in God. I have enough humility about myself and what I know and what I can see in the world. I have openness to the activity of God in the world and I have an ima imagination for a life of faith and a God who wants to work through me, that I'm going to walk into whatever God is calling me into doing. And one of the reasons I've really been drawn to Joseph's story um, in this season is because I know, for me, I know what faith sounds like. You know, I can quote the passages for you, the famous passage from Hebrews 11 about what faith is, and I could talk about all the different people in the hall of faith in that passage and what they went through in their lives. But I've, I think I've, as I've been praying this week, I realized I've commodified faith and righteousness as well. That I've made it something that I've done. That at one time I showed faith because I prayed a prayer. Or it's something that I have, something that I've gained, something that I've got. Rather than also seeing it here as what Joseph has. For Joseph, righteousness is someone that I look towards. The person of God and eventually for him and for us, the person of Jesus. Somebody that I, for him, faith and righteousness are somebody that I look like. Something that looks like the people described in Hebrews 11 rather than simply having studied the people in Hebrews 11. Or it's something that I do. It's learning to say maybe and walking into what God has for me. So that's been the challenge to me. So I'm going to invite Andrew to come back up in the band and we're going to do something a little bit different this afternoon. In our community, we practice 
a time of remembering the person of Jesus, the righteous one, and letting his story and his life and his death and resurrection become our story too. And we do that through uh, communion. So I'm going to have the communion cups down here and I'm going to invite you to come get them. And uh, if that story that I just talked about is not your story, that's totally okay. We're just super glad you're here. Feel free to just uh, sing along and reflect during this time. But if you're a person that's committed to Jesus as king, then I encourage you to come and grab one of these communion cups during this, this next time. And before we take it together, I'm going to come back up here and lead us through taking it together. I want you to just take a prayerful stance in your life of openness. Where might God be inviting me in my life? Where might he be making a baby with me? Where is he inviting me to be a person of gracious, to become a righteous person, to be a person of grace? Maybe there's a specific person that he's bringing to mind. Maybe that person is here in our congregation. Or maybe it's somebody that you're about to head home and see. A person that you disagree with, and maybe you think you're in the right, but someone, it's someone that you've been very ungracious towards. Maybe that's the person that God's bringing to your mind. Or where is he inviting you to say maybe in your life? You know, some of us have no sweet clue what God is calling us towards. But I know even in a group this size that there are some of us who know exactly what God is calling you to. He's been tapping, the Holy Spirit's been tapping on your shoulder for quite a while about something or other. Where is it, is there an area in your life where God is calling you to say maybe? And to live in faith and to take his hand and walk into whatever he's calling you to. So as the band leads us in response, I invite you to sing along. I invite you to come get a cup and a wafer. And then I'll come back up after the first song and lead us through communion together. Mm -hmm.